Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are starting our new series for this very weird year of Oscars. <laughs> it's it's going to be weird forever, I feel like, for Oscars now. Yeah, but that's not a bad thing. I mean, streaming has it's going to change a lot. And we knew that, but now it's just made way more apparent. So for this year, you know, we like a theme, but we really liked what we did last time and that we picked a year that had a lot of films that we hadn't seen for the entire slate. And then we were able to watch each one of those, talk about them individually. And then when we were all done, talk about each category competitively, because that's the thing that's so fun about watching the Oscars the current Oscars is when you've seen all the films, it's so fun to talk about the categories and, and where the merit is in their nominations or where there isn't merit in that nomination or, oh, I can see why that won. Like last year was so crazy, but you know, Parasite just blew so many things out of the water in a great way. Yep. So it's fun to do that with past Oscars. You know, even if we know who wins, it's fun to still take that analytical view. So this time around, we're doing 1975. Live, the 48th Annual Academy Awards presentation. This is the plaza of the music center in Los Angeles. 1975 is a banner year for movies. Yeah, and really, Diana had not seen any of these films. So it's it's interesting. We landed on this after watching Jaws because we saw who what Jaws was nominated against. Mm-hmm. And I started to go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. Because this is one of the biggest noted years in Oscar history yep. for reasons that we aren't going to mention here, but if you know a little bit about Oscar history, you're immediately going to know what we're talking about about this year. Mm-hmm. But as I started to look at the rest of these movies, the interesting thing about this year, with 1967, we had a lot of movies that were tackling tough subjects. Mm-hmm. This year is, there's a really wide variety of what movies are being made and what movies are getting recognition. The movies that we found for this series are very unique and different and representative of different genres. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes this year so cool. Like looking at our list, it feels like these are not the same film or right. Like just I'm having not seen any of them. It's like, oh, these all have some really different subject matter. So okay, cool. And we're kicking it off with one of my favorite thrillers? Question mark. It's Dog Day Afternoon. Three amateur bank robbers plan to hold up a bank. A nice, simple robbery. Walk in, take the money, and run. Unfortunately, the supposedly uncomplicated heist suddenly becomes a bizarre nightmare, as everything that could go wrong does. I wouldn't call this a thriller. It's hard to pin down what this movie is. True, true. I understand it could have been a thriller, but it's not. It is its own thing. Um, Oh, it it is a mess. But in a way that I kind of like. Okay. 
Like, I mean, here's the thing. We'll give you that. Watching this movie blew my mind because I felt like you can't make a movie like this. And you probably can't anymore. Uh, I don't think that's true. Well, well, actually, that's 100% not true. You can absolutely make this movie again. And they kind of did. Now that I think about it, that movie was Inside Man. Inside Man. It's also Airheads. <laughs> it's totally Airheads. <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing. Without Dog Day Afternoon... A lot of what we consider with a modern bank heist mm -hmm. probably isn't the same. But not even not even bank heist, just heist movies. That's true. But like the whole point is things go wrong, but it can go wrong for comedy, not they go wrong because one of the kickers about this movie is that this is based on a real thing that happened. Absolutely. Which is part of the thing that's crazy. Now in a film like the Airheads, all of the things going wrong is being played for humor right and some of the things going wrong in this film are portrayed for comedic effect but those are also things that actually happened yeah so there's so there is that element but it's also just like okay <laughs> all right well i have a soft spot in my heart for this movie but i i think i would agree with you that it's not the movie itself that i have a soft spot for it's the okay. performances oh okay i really love the performances in this movie like that's the thing i think that blew me away seeing it the first time and i really do think it's the strength of the performances that keeps you strung along the entire time because otherwise yeah this would just be a pile of but you've got some top level actors doing top level work that's true and you've got something going on that is unexpected. But the movie is a mess. Yeah. It, it is a mess. And I, I think that is because, and, and this is just because I know this about this movie, because it's been previously talked about in other places, and it's been around for a minute, because I know there's a lot of improv going on. Yeah. And that's fine. I don't have, I am not shitting on improv. I'm not shitting on improv as an art form, as being in big screen and big films. But I have a feeling that relying on improv became a crutch instead of a tool in your toolbox. <sighs> Knowing about how the improv goes down. Sure. I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but I do think it contributes to the messiness of so, the final product. So what I mean to say is when you get to a scene that you're like, oh, you know, I don't I don't want to write words for this scene. I feel like this just needs to be felt out. And this this scene is a scene that needs to get improv. If you do that too many times, that becomes a crutch. And then that's an attitude and a thought that bleeds into other elements of your process. Yeah. And then it becomes, I'm going to improv how I set this up. I'm going to improv the call sheet. I'm going to improv the costume. It just becomes a mentality of how you do things. And I'm, I don't know if that happened, but that can become a crutch instead of a tool. Well, I, I'll say this. They've got actors who still can do a masterful job while doing it. That's the one thing I give them credit for. But I have a feeling you're not going to like our director because you've previously not liked him before. Oh, who's that? Because I have like, I no, we'll, we'll get there. I don't we'll, know who our director is. Yeah, we'll get there. I know very little other than the faces on the screen. <laughs> Well, our budget for this movie was $1.8 million. That is no monies. It's no monies, but it kind of makes sense based on how this film looks, how this film's put together. Okay. And I think that lower budget kind of works. The lower budget is good because of the scrappy nature of our characters. Like, I don't have a problem with a low budget. Um, I've said it a lot. Like, that kind of forces your hand creatively, and I think that's a good thing. And it feels a little like a documentary. 
Not always, um, but every once in a while, especially when you're outside, you definitely get that, like, this feels like it's really going on vibe. I don't know about that, but I like the the lack of shine on everything. Yeah. That was good. I didn't need anything to be shiny or fancy, and and not having money kept that away. Just that opening sequence alone mm-hmm. makes this concerted effort to be like, we are in New York, mm-hmm. and not in New sure. York that you've seen glorified in movies. It's real fucking New York. And which is gross. Well, and, and real New York, it was like, it's gross, but it's also alive. Like, sure. He kind of shows all of that, but then it sets the setting of like, everything's hot, everything's high, high temp, like everybody's very tense, <laughs> and you're in New York City. Mm-hmm. Well, it must have struck a chord with people because it grossed $50 million. Oh, okay. So clearly the time period, the setting, the sort of wildness of it all, it must have just struck a raw nerve with people. People liked it. So we did talk about this is based on a true story. And I will tell you, we have not watched it, but there is a documentary called The Dog mm-hmm. that is about the actual real life figure behind all of this. Yes. And we considered watching it, but we decided not to because we didn't want it to color our opinion of this particular film. So we, we're probably going to watch it because we love a documentary, but we, we have not as of the recording of this. From what I can tell you and everything that I've just heard secondhand about stuff. Mm-hmm. The true story is even more buck wild than what you see in this movie. I believe that. And this movie's pretty buck wild. Mm. You know, not in terms of subject matter per se, but just in terms of the sheer amount of characters that pop up in the story. I mean, these people are dum-dums. <laughs> well, on August 22nd, 1972, John Voidovich, who Sonny fills in for our Al Pacino character, okay. and Salvatore Natural, Sal, attempted to rob a Chase Manhattan bank at East 3rd and Avenue P in Brooklyn. They held nine hostages for 14 hours. Voidovich was trying to get enough money for his lover, Liz Eden, to have a sex change. Natural was killed, and Voidovich was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. For his participation in this movie, for selling his rights to the story, he received $7,500 plus 1% profit. He then gave the $2,500 to Liz Eden, in order for her to have her gender confirmation surgery. Aww. That's like, <laughs> I want to like cry because it's like sweet. Liz died in 1987 in the midst of the AIDS crisis. Aww. Voidovich was released after five years and did not die of cancer until 2006. And in 1972, a Life article was published after all of this shit went down. Wow. Because it was this much of a spectacle. Yeah, I mean, this is crazy. All of the crowds of people and different stuff that happened, the immense amount of people showed up to the bank robbery. Sure. It became a fucking spectacle. Mm -hmm. It was bad for the cops. Like, the cops are sitting there, and you see this in the movie, Mm -hmm. of like, this has become a three-ring circus. Oh, it's it's bad, and it's very dangerous. (laughs) Like, I mean, that's a nightmare for any police situation the only saving grace is that voidovich doesn't want to hurt anybody yeah that yeah that that is the only thing that saved really anybody is that his goal wasn't kill as many people as possible it was i just want money yeah and i want to get out of here alive that was i'm the little man i've been screwed i want to get money and then i want to get out of here i want to get out of here alive that's Uh it (laughs) like which okay we can make those things happen. You're going to go to j- jail. But I mean, that, especially okay. 
especially when Shelton, the FBI guy, shows up and it was like, I can take care of you, mm-hmm. but we got to get rid of Sal. Yeah. And you see, and th- and from that moment on in the movie, you can just see all over Sonny's face of like, he's going to have to go. Yeah. I have no choice. I'm going to have to make a choice. And he doesn't want to. He doesn't want, he wants everybody to be okay. Yeah. He does. Like that was never his intention was to get money. He needed someone to help him. And of course, the one person who dies is Saul. Of course. Well, in the Life article that inspired the film, the writers described Voidovich as a, quote, dark, thin fellow with the broken-faced good looks of an Al Pacino or a Dustin Hoffman, unquote. Oh, More on that later. The actual robbers got $213,000, far more than what's depicted in this film. Oh, okay. Voidovich was quoted as saying he would have never waved an actual handkerchief like Sonny does in the film. He considered that a form of surrender. Oh, sure. So did I. When I watched it, I was like, that's kind of weird, but okay. <laughs> it works, though. No, it like, makes his character that much more ineffectual. Oh, sh- like I get it. I understand that choice because in the movie, it's he's trying to signal, I'm coming out and I'm not doing anything bad, so don't shoot me. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Honestly, that was for the, the film audience. Absolutely. Like, I, I, I'll allow it. The bank manager was quoted as saying he had more laughs in one night than in weeks. <laughs> And teller Shirley Bell, who I'm assuming the mouth is based off of, mm-hmm. said if they'd been her house guests on a Saturday night, it would have just been hilarious. The whole thing was fucking Keystone Cops. So like funny. they were just bumbling morons. That's awesome. The incident became part of standard police training on dealing with crowd control and hostage situations from that point on. Yep. Because again, they got really fucking lucky that the guy who wound up in charge of all of this was a little bit off his rocker. And also wanted everybody to be okay. That, that he was honestly just a dumb dumb. Like he was just a dumb dumb and he just wanted money. Huh. And so that's the interesting thing here. We get to our writing. Mm-hmm. P.F. Kluge and Thomas Moore are the magazine article writers. They really don't have okay. a lot beyond that. Although P.F. Kluge wrote the novel Eddie and the Cruisers. Okay. On which the movie is based. But our screenplay writer is Frank Pearson. Okay. Before this, he creates the television show Have Gun Will Travel. Okay. He writes Cat Baloo and Cool Hand Luke. Oh. Which we talked about in our last series. Meh. After this, he writes the 1976 A Star is Born and also directs that. Haywire, Presumed Innocent, and then he was a consulting producer on The Good Wife and Mad Men. Oh. And wrote some episodes of those shows. Okay. So what do we think of this script? I mean, I stand by my previous comment that I think there's some lazy bits here. The vast majority of impactful dialogue in the movie is improvised. Yep. There you go. Now, here's here's what I like about this is that they didn't just ditch Pearson's script. Pearson was in on this the whole time. So the way that they did it was they did three weeks of cast rehearsals before they ever started filming. Sure. And they built the majority of the improv in those scenes of rehearsals. Okay. That was then written into the script as dialogue. Okay. That's good. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's more in um it's like a playwriting yeah. workshop style. That's fine. I like I don't have a problem with any of that. But there there's just there's that element there of like we'll figure it out when we get there. It's a very <laughs> 70s way of making movies. Exactly. But that that works on stage that doesn't work with film the same way 
I'm not saying it can't, but with this type of story, with this scale, there's some, it's just some, there's some sloppiness. There's just some sloppiness to it. Well, it also just goes to show that the, the script is then pretty much patchworked get together over three weeks. And I'll give them credit. There's a lot that's really cool and works at it. Sure. You know, our director didn't actually like using improv for the movies he made. He really liked to stick to the script. I'm keeping this a secret so we can get there later. But he felt that in order to get the natural character development Mm -hmm. and the tension that was going on this entire time, he wanted that improvisational element. He wanted natural reactions. Again, I don't have a problem with that. There's a time and a place and that makes sense. And, you know, I mean, we've we've all heard and seen the stories of like different things where it's like, oh, well, this was totally kept secret so that they could get this type of reaction. But when your whole movie's made up of that, it gets sloppy. Yeah, it gets it gets sloppy. And it's like, well, did you write the film? Did you direct the film? Or did you just like surprise the film? (laughs) The one thing that that was nice was being like, okay, at least Pearson had some control over the script. He actually wrote it around 12 sequences. Okay. So I mean, it, it really is like a play. It's like a play with a basic bone structure, and then they fleshed out the dialogue there. Actually, this is more like an RPG. I know. That's actually what it is. But it is on rails. They know the story. They know the beats they're going to hit. Yeah. And then they're figuring out the reactions and the dialogue as they go. Yeah. So the thing, the biggest things that were improvised, Attica. I don't want to talk to somebody who's trying to calm me. Get somebody in charge here. I am in charge I don't want to talk to some flunky pig trying to calm me, man. You don't have to be calling What's he pig? doing? What do you get back what over there? What are you there? moving in there for? What do you What's get the doing? fuck back there? Get huh? back What's there. What's he what doing? Look at him with him. Get over there. Go on back there, man. Get over there, will ya? He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it. I'm going to always going to kill you. Attica! 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 That whole moment was improvised from Pacino. Okay. He credits assistant director Burt Harris for that idea because the Attica prison riots had just happened in 1971. Okay. And it would elicit a big reaction. Okay, yeah, okay. From a crowd that wasn't real pleased with the police in New York at that time. Fair. Charles Durning's reaction in that scene is completely in the moment. He is flabbergasted. He's like, I don't know what to do here. (laughs) Exactly. Pacino starts shouting Attica and he's... As an actor was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say now. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> and it works. It works really well. When Sonny asks Sal what country he wants to fly to and Sal responds, Wyoming, Pacino's response is completely genuine. He had no idea that, that was what Sal was going to say. <laughs> and so he has to react suddenly. The biggest one, though, is the phone call between Sonny and Leon. Okay. That entire sequence was improvised. Oh. They originally wrote having Sonny and Leon kiss with an emotional goodbye. Pacino refused, claiming it would take away from the phone conversation. Sure, sure, Al. Hey. (laughs) He's got some issues with this character. We'll talk about it with his acting. But uh, there's definitely a little bit of homophobia going on here, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Pearson, Mm -hmm. because Pacino is the fucking movie. Yeah. Is like, okay, I got to change it. And so all that wound up left was that phone conversation. At the end of the day, it works. It really does work. Okay, let's let's take actor objections out of it. 
Yeah. Let's just take let's just table that bullshit out of it. But I'm trying to think about like would them having an emotional kiss do I need that do I need that in the story? And actually I'm going to say that phone call it's more impactful that they never really like there's nothing else other than that phone call. Uh, thanks a lot, and uh, bon voyage. Yeah, right. See you sometime. Yeah, I'll see you in my dreams, huh? Right, I'll wait so long. <laughs> oh, I don't know, you know? Life's so funny. You said a mouthful, sweetheart. Well, goodbye, huh? Like it, like I think it works a- so much better. adding a kiss actually che- it does cheapen the kiss, and then it feels like it's exploitive. It's just to get two dudes to kiss on screen. That's what that feels like, especially in 1975. And then I then well, I'm just looking at what I'm just looking at the story. Then I added 1975. Yeah, we're just trying to see two dudes kiss, which like we should have two dudes, two ladies kiss all the time because it shouldn't be a problem anytime ever, whatever. And Frank Pearson was probably thinking, you know, I'm I'm going to push the boundaries. Let's go for it. Which good for you. Good for you for having that thought. But like, then let's talk about what's the best for the story. Swap all the genders. It's more impactful for the relationship if they never see each other other than that. Because it's about the relationship and the love there and not that. And the relationship is also incredibly toxic. To- and, <laughs> that's, and that's its own set of circumstances like, there. Neither of them are well. No. And and the thing is, if no. you have Leon kiss, you're you're sort of implying this forgiveness when Leon shouldn't have to forgive Sonny for the horrible shit that he's done to no. <laughs> Like, it's just, woo. So... There's a lot going so, on, yeah. but it works really well the way they did it. Yeah, but that and then if you then you add in the actor homophobia bullshit, and I'm just like, go to timeout, Al Pacino. I know, I know. Good timeout. Despite the first take of that scene being perfect, uh-huh. our director insisted Pacino film it a second time because he saw how exhausted he was from that first take mm-hmm. and wanted him to look even more exhausted because <laughs> of the robbery situation. Sure. He's like, I know if we do this again, you're going to be that much more tired and exhausted. Fair. And it's going to show. Fair. And because the phone conversation was going to go on however long it was, our director did not want to have to stop it. Sure. But they only had 10 minutes of film per reel. Sure. So he set up a second camera mm-hmm. right on them. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as the first one started to run out of film, he started the second camera so they could splice it together. Sure. Just in case. And finally, a moment that we probably felt was improvised, but we weren't sure. When Sonny and Moretti are shouting at each other out in the street after the gunshot goes off. Oh, about the about the back door thing? And they're all just they're just they're yelling just over screaming. Completely improvised. Yeah, that was that was too bad. That was too like this is not a Coen Brothers film. This is improv. Yeah. Now what's perfect is our director wanted Charles Durning to get Pacino on the defensive. So he told him, go do this and get him off balance. And all of that is Pacino's reaction as Sonny to be like, what What the fuck? What the fuck? Are you it's fucking good. me? I like it. That's good. It's so good. I'm here for that. There's one scene that our director insisted not be cut from the final film. Mm-hmm. And that was Sonny dictating his will. Okay. Our director said that scene sold him on making the movie, period. 
Yeah, he has to face the the fact that there is a good chance he's not getting out of this alive. Absolutely. He has to. Like, even though that's what he wants and that who's trying to, he has to face the fact that that is a possibility. Especially after everything that goes down. Yep. He has to face the facts. God, God bless you. And watch over you. Till we are joined in the hereafter. And finally, only two shots are ever fired in the film, despite guns being a near constant presence in the movie. I noticed that. It's a huge subversion of Chekhov's gun, and it honestly works really well. Yeah, because you get that one shot at the back, and then... Sal gets shot. Sal gets shot, which is shocking. What's even more shocking is the gun on Sonny's head, and, and, and all you hear from Sonny, the last line he gives is, please don't shoot, please don't shoot me. Like at that yeah. point, he's like, I just don't want to die. <laughs> yep. <sighs> now, how about a title who could have been better? Or rather, what could have been better? Oh, okay. For the title. It was originally called The Boys in the Bank. <laughs> Our director hated the title, thinking it sounded like a light, fluffy comedy. Kind of, a little bit. So instead, he went with Dog Day Afternoon to suggest a hot, stuffy late summer day. Fair. Which is what this was. Fair. But I like Boys in the Bank. Meh. Like boys in the bank, like they need. There needs to be a different heisty movie, and it's the boys in the bank. Yeah, I'm cool with that. And that gets us to our director, who I have alluded to several yeah, times. But who is it? It is Sidney Lumet. Before this, Twelve Angry Men, The Fugitive Kind, A View from the Bridge, Long Day's Journey into Night, Failsafe, The Seagull, The Anderson Tapes, and Serpico. After this, Network, Equus, The Wiz. Prince of the City, Death Trap, The Verdict, Power, Running on Empty, Family Business, A Stranger Among Us, Gloria, Find Me Guilty, and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. So, it's been a while since I've listened to that episode, but I believe I thought his direction was horse crap. For, yes. For you no, really okay, hated his direction. Okay, I thought his direction was horse crap. I did not think his direction was that bad. It was horse crap. <laughs> I don't think his direction is bad in this movie. But I would definitely agree with you that his stage training, because he's very much a stage trained director. That was my problem with Network. It's like, you, there's no fucking excuse for this, dude. That was my problem. There was no excuse for what he did on that on on that film. No. Okay. It's just it's sloppy. It's it's sloppy. And like he's getting good performances out of people. So like in that term, like you're doing your job as director. But there's some sloppiness. And I'll tell you where it feels the sloppiest for me in terms of direction is all the interior bank scenes. Wow. That's fair. That is fair, though. And I'll tell you why. Nobody in the bank has a purpose. Nobody on screen has a purpose. Now, I understand there's this whole, like, well, we're being held up. Like, there's chaos. There's nobody on screen, with the exception of Pacino, He's the only one that that dude is directing. Nobody knows what their purpose. I am in this situation. This is my character. And this is how my character is reacting. This is my purpose in the scene. My purpose in the scene. Like, oh, and the the one lady who's like just trying to like help him to go. She's like, this is who should leave. She's mom in the situation. Like, that's my job. Yeah, the mouth is. The mouth. Like, that's her job. Like, that was her purpose. Is my purpose in this situation is to be mom. Like. There wasn't, there was no lady like, my purpose in this situation is to be hysterical. Like, nobody had a purpose. So everybody's aimless. And it's, that's like, those scenes don't work for me. 
that's that's where it feels so sloppy because he did not direct those actors. Not he very o- much. He only directed Pacino. And anybody who does else who does a good job in there is just because they're good at their job. He's directing. He's directing Sal as well. Well, I did not love him. Mm. I don't. I. Mm, we can talk about him later. But that's where his directing is sloppy to yeah. me. That's the problem. Because the stuff on the street, it's chaotic, but in a good way. The cops. I mean, cops know what their purpose is. And it, and and you get Durning. Sure, Durning. Who's- Moretti is this Moretti's fucking fabulous. cartoon character cop in a great way, and then and then you flip and you've got Shelton mm-hmm. who is by the books FBI and mm-hmm. also this just sort of malicious looming character the entire sure. time. But I, that is that is the That's weakest the spot of directing in the movie. But like I say, it is definitely working and clicking better than Network did. It's sloppy, yeah. Mm. Well, Lumet refused to watch any of the copious amounts of news footage. Okay. Because it was so wild. Yeah. He believed the audience wouldn't believe the story. Fair. And that's one of the interesting things. He chose not to use actual footage of Sonny and Leon's wedding, nor emulate it on screen. Okay. He did not want to alienate viewers. His whole thing was, and I understand there's there's homophobia in sure. here and that that's that's a big problem. Sure. But I think he's smart in realizing if I tell everything like it happened, sure. people are just going to fucking laugh. Oh, sure. When there's a much deeper, interesting human story. Oh, here. absolutely. Like I was because compl- I knew nothing. I knew nothing going into this other than this is based on a true story. Like that's all I knew. Yeah. Going into it. Because one of the things that they did smartly is that we meet his wife, his ex-wife first. We see her with the children. So they say we're bringing your wife. We're bringing your wife. I think that's who we're going to see. And then we see Leon. I was very confused for a solid five minutes because I was like, what? Did you just get Leon to throw them off? Is Leon going to help y'all out of this shitty situation? And then it's like, no, Leon's my wife. Yeah. Oh, now I understand what's happening, but I was not expecting this. Yeah. Okay. And then then my next confusion was, who is this actor? I know this actor. Who is this actor? (laughs) I know this actor. Which we will get there. Yeah. Um, But that's what he smartly figured out. But that was- this story has enough twists and turns sure. for us to pull from. Absolutely. Without needing to like recreate it in, yeah. in this sort of setting because it's already sure. Sure. And also, again, and this is where the time of when this film was made, 1975, putting that wedding in there, knowing that it was not a legally recognized marriage would also just seem to make a joke out of what they saw that they like this is a real relationship we love each other we had a wedding because we wanted that wedding we wanted that moment and to everybody else that's a joke like i love instead that we get the news report exactly which feels like you're watching and you're horrified yeah like hearing the news report but you're also getting to see sunny hearing it and just seeing his face go god damn it nobody gets it yeah exactly <laughs> nobody really nobody understands nobody understands yeah, which is which is ex- which is exactly the whole point. So, like, the world sucks. I wish it didn't suck that way. As sloppy as he was, he's very intelligent in knowing what he wanted to that, use for this movie and yes. what he didn't. No, I agree. I feel like, with the exception of some things that back then weren't great, but are now, I understand it better. I feel like they treated Leon very well in this film. Like, I feel like they treated Leon with a lot of respect. 
They decided Leon was going to be an actual character. Yes. Not a caricature at all. Correct. And they decided that Leon was going to get to say his piece about the whole situation. Yes. And that was, that's the key importance because you're telling a human story. Yes. Well, Leon's a person. Exactly. And so many, so many other movies would treat that character like this just ridiculous, over-the-top comedic presence. Well, now I feel bad because I'm like, we're dead naming this person? We're not. Leon is a changed name, and I'm not using Liz Eden's former name at all. Liz Eden. Liz Eden's dead name. Okay. So Leon is the name. Leon is the name that they gave in the movie. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I feel bad. Mm -mm. Okay. (laughs) And now I feel slightly better. Yeah, they changed everybody's names for the film. Okay. So. I feel bad better <laughs> it's still not good but not it, great but better it is one of those things too where it is a difficult thing to talk about but when donate say, five dollars to the trans organization i feel bad <laughs> all i will say is that leon is the character's name i don't like it they film day and night over seven weeks and he works speedy yep he's an old-time tv director so yeah yeah but they finished three weeks ahead of schedule so <laughs> i mean You're sacrificing quality for speed. He got results. They only had one night to film at JFK Airport. Oh, shit. So they pulled that whole sequence off, which is a fucking great sequence in one night. Oh, man, they had to work fast. (laughs) Lumet was not interested in using a soundstage for the interior of the bank like you would normally do. Okay. He wanted continuity. He wanted to know that if you saw somebody entering the bank from the street, you could see them from the doorway. Okay. So to do that, they found a block in Brooklyn. Okay. And they converted a vacant warehouse into the bank set. That makes sense. But it was so convincing, they had multiple people come in, try to open an account. That's funny. I like that. (laughs) And all of the lighting in the film is accomplished by actual lights that you see in the street and in the building. I like that stuff. It's fluorescence, emergency lights, street Mm -hmm. lamps, and auto headlights. That stuff is always the best. I mean, practical lighting, I always prefer... It's interesting because this year had some big technical achievements. We'll talk about that with some of our other movies. Okay. But in this movie in particular, there's a lot of movies at this time that are really investigating how we use natural lighting. I'm here for it. Instead of big giant film set lighting. Yeah. And the lighting in this movie, there's a lot of it, but it also is super grainy and gritty. Mm -hmm. And it's reflecting off the streets and the buildings and stuff like that. Yeah, it really does work. And it, and it gives that sense of environment of we are in a street in Brooklyn. We are not on a stage. We are not in a set. <laughs> Lumet also hired about 300 extras to be the crowd outside the bank. And each day they filmed, non-extras began to crowd in as well. Oh, goodness. To see yeah, what was going they're like, on. What's up? What are you doing? Here's the cool thing. The hired extras rounded up the onlookers uh-huh. and got them to perform along with them. They coached them on what was going on. Okay. So it became this giant improv exercise. Oh, okay. If you came as an onlooker, they were like, okay, you got to do this. You got to be this kind of person. Or you're with our group, you know, you're with the gay rights group. So you got to be doing, you got to be saying these things. That's funny. And they all coached each other together. They offered the residents that were in the block free hotel rooms if they wanted to get away from the noise. Hmm. Almost none of them left. That's funny. They stuck around, so they just told him, okay, well, then just sit out on your balcony and watch. And it just added to the ambiance. That's pretty cool. I like. <laughs> I, I do like that. That's it's, fun. Just for like seven weeks, everybody on this little street in Brooklyn were like, let's just fucking watch, man. 
This is a thing that's happening. <laughs> What's Sunny going to do now? Fair. And that gets us to our cast. Yeah. And we start the man, the myth, the legend, Al Pacino as Sonny. I don't think we have ever talked about Al Pacino on this show before. Nope. Before this, The Panic in Needle Park, The Godfather, Scarecrow, Serpico, and The Godfather Part 2. After this, Bobby Deerfield and Justice for All Cruising, Author, Author, Scarface, Sea of Love, Dick Tracy, The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, that is Francis Ford Coppola's new title for The Godfather Part 3. God bless him. He just did a giant re-edit. But, uh, <sighs> stop hanging out with George. <laughs> Frankie and Johnny, Glengarry, Glen Ross, Scent of a Woman, Carlitos Way, Heat, Donnie Brasco, The Devil's Advocate, The Insider, Any Given Sunday, the 2002 remake of Insomnia, Simone, The Recruit, Geely, Angels in America, The Merchant of Venice, 88 Minutes, Ocean's 13, Righteous Kill, You Don't Know Jack, Jack and Jill, Stand Up Guys, Salome, Phil Spector, Danny Collins, Paterno, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and The Irishman. And he... He's having another career resurgence. He just keeps kind of lays low for a little while, does some other stuff, and then he pops up again. Yeah. He also likes to do stage work, too, so good for him. He's, yeah, he's done some stage work. He had some, I think he had some kids. He had twins, like, late in life, so he's been enjoying himself. What do we think of Al Pacino in this movie? He's all right. All right? He's fine. I think he's great. I mean, to me, he's kind of Al Pacinoing it up. But this is the first time we ever see that. That's, is it? Like, okay, for me, when I first saw this movie, Mm -hmm. I saw it on the heels of The Godfather. Okay, so there's that. And Al Pacino in The Godfather is not, you know, the Al Pacino character that we know today. He's not the Scarface. He's not the all of that. And so this is such a wild departure from Michael Corleone. It is. It's wildly different, but I think it's better. Like, I like Michael Corleone better as a performance. I think... Okay, so, like, he's he's good in this. He is. But in terms of him as a performer, I don't think this is his best work. Like, I don't really care for this. I think him and Scarface and Michael Corleone, way better. Way better. By miles. I don't know. There's... There's something about it in the in the neuroticism that he brings. To me, it was just such a different tonal shift. And to know that he could do this just as well as he could do Michael Corleone to me. I, it's, it's fair to have liked this because like, oh, I didn't expect this from you. It's kind of like seeing having seen Will Ferrell in Stranger Than Fiction, just being like, I didn't know that was in you. And like, it's not the best performance ever. But that's Will Ferrell doing something very dramatic, and it's lovely. I just really like him in this movie. That's fine. That's fine. I just I don't think it's his best thing ever. Mm. I think he's. I think. I think he's fine. I think he's fine. He holds the whole movie together. Mm. He really does. I think him and Moretti hold the film together. That's fair. You don't have either one of them. Your movie falls apart. Yeah. But it's both of them. Like, if you get rid of Moretti, you're fucked. If you get rid of Pacino, you're fucked. Like, it's, you know. Something some about it struck a chord with me. It still does. He actually recalled hearing about the news reports after the incident. He was amused by all the articles saying that it would make a great role for him. It's fair. Because Voidovich. Because that's who he looks like. That's fine. Kind of does. He'd agreed to the role, but he finished The Godfather Part Two. Sure. And he was exhausted 
and depressed. Fair. I mean, dark fucking movie. And he's super method. So it takes it out of him. He realized that because of his method technique, it was going to require an immense shift emotionally to go from the dark, depressive, reserved Michael Corleone feelings yeah. to the near exhausting mania of playing Sonny every day on a film set. Yeah. And he was like, I don't think I can do this. I need a break. So Lumet was disappointed. He really wanted Al for it, but he decided to move forward. And he sent the script to Dustin Hoffman, the other guy that we talked about in the articles. The second Pacino heard his rival was being offered the role, yep. he immediately jumped back on. Of course he did. <laughs> that motherfucker's not getting my job. Okay, you know what? Mm-hmm. By all accounts, Al Pacino, better guy than Dustin Hoffman. Better guy? From what I can tell... Al Pacino they're... is just a really weird theater dork. No, they're both huge assholes. Okay. They're huge assholes who have problems with how short they are. They're just dicks. <laughs> they're both fucking dicks. I want to see them play brothers. <laughs> That's what I need. I need them to play brothers. <sighs> like murderous brothers. That's what I need. Because I think it would heal them. <laughs> <laughs> but then only one of them can be nominated for an Oscar. And I want to see which one gets it. <laughs> it's so mean. So Pacino, deep in his method, sure. was said to have slept only a few hours a night during shooting, ate very little, and took cold showers to appear completely worn out while being completely amped up the entire time. Dude, just act. I know. I know. Just fucking act, dude. And then there's a weird no homo from him. <sighs> And, and I say weird because it is legitimately baffling why he decided this. He struggled with playing a gay man. The idea of it. Now, here's, here's his rationale for that. He's method. And he has never experienced this. And so he's struggling to find a way into that. That's where I think I'm like, well, it's bad. It's homophobic. But I kind of get it, dude, because that's the way you see your acting. Regardless, he decided he was going to grow a mustache as his means of sort of getting into the character. That, I I don't know. He just figured that's how to work. Lumet insisted to Pacino, that looks awful. You need to shave it. But Pacino was like, this is how I got to do it. This is how I got to figure it out. So then be, they did be, a day of filming. Because if I have a mustache, I'll feel like a gay man. I guess. I, oh, <laughs> well, they filmed the first day and then he watched it and he looked at it with Lumet and was like, yeah, no, that's fucking god-awful, and it looks terrible on me. So he shaved it, and that was that. Boys are dumb. Boys are the worst. <laughs> They're the worst. I, <sighs> there are so many gay men with beautiful mustaches. It just didn't, like, work, for, it didn't work for him. Just, uh... Just figure it out, my dude. Act. Just act. Just fucking act and don't be homophobic. Now we get to John Cazale as Sal. Okay. John Cazale is widely regarded among his peers as maybe the best actor out of all of them, but he died incredibly young. Mm. Before this, he was in The Godfather, The Conversation, and The Godfather Part Two. And after this, he was in The Deer Hunter, and then he passed away. Who was he in The Godfather? He is Fredo. <gasps> He's Fredo? Yes. The man playing Sal in this movie is Fredo in The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. Okay. I didn't realize that. Uh, he, he has a grand total of like five credits. And in each of those movies, he gives what I feel like are pretty impeccable performances. It's pretty good as Fredo the pissant. 
This one is a little rougher. I like him. I like him as a counterbalance to Sonny, but we don't know enough about his character to justify why he's being that way. True. He kind of feels like an afterthought. Well, so here's a weird thing. Pacino, who used a lot of clout in this movie to get people involved, Mm -hmm. and granted, he very much was like, I'm really going to own this movie. Okay. He insisted having Kazali cast. Okay. And I mean, this is a guy he's worked with and trusts and appreciates and probably trusts on the, I am going to have to work to this person day in, day out. (laughs) Sure. I I need somebody I can trust to improv against. Yeah. However, the real life Sal was 18 years old. Oh, wow. Kazale, who looks like he's in his 30s, he's got a young face, but he was in his 40s. Yeah, I was about to say, he does not look like he's in his 30s <laughs> at all. He um, looks like he's in his 40s. But Sal is 18, and Lumet was initially just like, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. He is completely wrong for the role and inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, you could justify having somebody in their mid-20s, maybe. Sure. But it's like, this has to be a kid. And then Kazale came in and read for the role. And Lumet was sold in five minutes. Because Kazale was just such a fantastic actor. Wow, okay. He's one of those guys that if you put him in front of a screen, magic happened. Okay. So he cast him immediately. Like I said, I think what it, for me, what it is, is that I really like his performance. Mm -hmm. I just don't know why he's making any of the choices he made. And that comes down to the script. Yeah, it's just, I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. But I feel like he's making very specific choices about who Sal is. And then we don't get enough time with Sal to really make any of those pay off. He gets such wonderful moments where you're like, oh, he's fucked up from the war and stuff. And just like, what state do you want to go to? Wyoming. This is like, he's never been on a plane. He's just a big kid. Mm -hmm. And you could have played with that, but they just didn't. And his line, I don't want to get the cancer, is fairly haunting considering yeah. that just three years later, he, a very heavy smoker, died from lung cancer. Okay. Yeah. Also was uh, engaged to Meryl Streep. Really? Yes. <gasps> and he's who passed away when she did that movie. Mm-hmm. That was Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, well, he passed away during Kramer versus Kramer. They were in The Deer like, Hunter together. That was like just before, Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. It, his now story, some dots are being connected for me. His story is incredibly tragic. That is sad. Because had he lived, he would have been just like one of the hailed actors. Like everybody like Pacino and De Niro and everybody in our new age of like the gods of acting that we know, they all went, he was 10 times better than us. Yeah. Every single one of them. <laughs> Next up, Charles Durning as Moretti. One of the greatest character actors in film history. Before this, he's in the 1970 film I Walk the Line, dealing sisters, the sting, and the front page. After this, the Hindenburg, the Fury, an enemy of the people, the Greek tycoon, the Muppet movie, <laughs> North Dallas 40, When a Stranger Calls, Starting Over, The Final Countdown, True Confessions, Sharky's Machine, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Tootsie, To Be or Not to Be from 1983, The 1985 Death of a Salesman, Dick Tracy, The Hudsucker Proxy, IQ, One Fine Day, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and he's Francis Griffin, Peter's dad on Family Guy. What do we think of Charles Durning in this movie? He's great. Scene stealer. He's probably my favorite part of the whole movie. He's so good. 
he he starts off as a cartoon character and the more it goes on the more you see him get beleaguered i love the fact that he doesn't have control over his guys well the whole thing is just like he's just in a shitty position because they've never dealt with anything like this and they so they don't know what to do and his tactical guys are just like we're gonna go in he's like stop it do you not what the fuck are they doing I'm radioing them now to tell them to get the fuck off the back of the building. <laughs> it's just such a shit show, and he has to be in charge of it. Yep. He auditioned for Mulvaney, the bank manager position, and Pacino, a friend of Durning, asks about the audition. Upon learning that Durning had not auditioned for Moretti, he immediately turned Durning around, walked him back into the room to Lumet, and said, have him read for Moretti. And he did. Yep. During this, he was also filming The Hindenburg, so he had to commute back and forth between New York and L.A. No, that sucks. But the directors, Robert Wise and Sidney Lumet, worked with their schedules so that they wouldn't interfere with the productions. That's nice. They made it so that he could shoot and move around a little easier. And finally, in his film debut, Chris Sarandon as Leon Shermer. We talked about Chris Sarandon in Child's Play. You know him from The Princess Bride, but this is his first ever film role. Wow. This is, yeah. Like, once I realized what was happening with the character, I was like, wait, who is this? Who? I, well, I know who this person is. Why do I know this person? David, what? Who is it? Who is it? I know who this is. It's Chris Sarandon. Wow. Yeah. He's amazing. He's so good. He is very good. I mean, the screams stage actor to me so much. Totally, but I don't like. I don't give a fuck about stage actor, but like, it's good. He saw Leon and realized this is a full human being, and I refuse to let them make this into a caricature in any way. I think the thing that Chris really clung to was that Leon is an addict. I mean, I don't know if he's an addict, but he is definitely mentally ill, and he is struggling. Because I think the uh, the bigger implication is that he was suicidal. See, I, I got it that they were coming off a bender. Because hmm. they kept saying something about strung out. So I, f- I feel like they were coming off of, coming down off of drugs or Possibly. maybe alcohol. So that that's what that's the impression I got. Maybe I'm wrong. But oh, Chris Sarandon did such a great job. But it's, in, it's incidental because it really just it is like matter. they've clearly struggled. And Sonny made it worse. Yeah, I mean, Sonny's an abusive partner. Yeah. By a lot. But they also have that kinship of being outcasts. Sure. And they get that. Uh, He's such a good job of the role. (laughs) He's he's worth the price of admission. He really is in this movie. It's it's fantastic. And then we get to our Arpons. Oh. We have Carol Kane as Jenny slash Squirrel, the girl hiding under the desk. Carol Kane just randomly in this movie. Uh-huh. Penelope Allen playing Sylvia or the Mouth. She's a handful of credits, but the biggest interesting thing here is she was Al Pacino's surrogate mother oh. when he moved to New York. Oh. So she was like somebody who took him in, gave him a place to live while he was getting started in acting. Oh, well, that's very nice. We have James Broderick playing Agent Sheldon, the FBI guy. Before this, he was in Alice's Restaurant, taking a pill in 123, and the TV show Family. But you probably know him better as the father of Matthew Broderick. Oh, okay. Who visited the set and talked to Sidney Lumet during the filming of the movie. Okay. And Matthew Broderick also went to work with Sidney Lumet in the late 80s. Of course he did. Marsha Jean Kurtz playing Miriam. 
She was in Requiem for a Dream, but you probably know her as playing a hostage named Miriam in Inside Man, a movie that very much was yeah. inspired by this movie. Inside Man is a great film. Lance Henriksen as Murphy, the driver of the limousine that we see near the end of the okay. film, and also an agent throughout the rest of the movie. He was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He's Bishop from Aliens and Millennium. He's a big deal yeah. character actor. He auditioned for the part of Leon hmm. and instead got offered this role. Dominic Chianese as Sonny's father. He was junior soprano on The Sopranos and Johnny Ola in The Godfather Part Two. Judith Molina, playing Sonny's mother, is the founder of the Living Theater with Julian Beck. And she was also the granny in the first Adams Family movie. Carol Kane replaced her for Adams Family Values. Oh. Lionel Pena plays the pizza boy who brings pizzas to Sonny's. He's a cop who has pizzas in Inside Man. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Tony Lip playing a cop at JFK. He was Carmine in The Sopranos and had longtime connections working at the Copacabana. Kenneth McMillan as the commissioner. He was Baron Harkonnen in the original Dune. And uncredited, and I looked for him and I didn't see him, but Harvey Firestein is reportedly one of the gay demonstrators. Oh, cool. Outside during the film. Okay. And that gets us to our trivia. Trivia. The actual robber, John Voidovich, watched The Godfather for ideas on how to rob the Chase Manhattan Bank. <laughs> That's awesome. It's so many connections. This movie, it's like Al Pacino had to make this movie. Like, there was nobody else who could do it. Filming was taking place during the winter, so the actors had to have ice in their mouths before takes, so their breath wouldn't be visible outside. Hmm. The editor, Dee Dee Allen, used Elton John's song Amarina as a placeholder while she rough cut the opening sequence. She then took it out because the plan was never to actually use it. It was just put something around it so I've got something to work from. Mm -hmm. When Lumet saw it, he'd actually gotten to really like the song and the sequence. Okay. So he just went and got the rights for the music of the film. <laughs> but interestingly, there is no background or score used in the rest of the film. There are occasional stings of practical music, like a Looney Tunes theme and a song on the radio. Sure. But there is no score to this movie whatsoever. Huh. It's actually really unnerving watching the very end where all you hear airplane jets and they're walking Sonny off and then it just cuts. I wouldn't say it's unnerving. It's just unusual. But I like that. It works really well. A very specific nod to our sound guys. Sal's gun is an M1 carbine machine gun. Mm -hmm. When Sal racks the gun, there is the sound of a bolt twisting while the gun is self-cleaning. The M1 carbine is one of the few automatic or semi-automatic firearms that uses this kind of rotating bolt. So the sound guys had enough foreknowledge to include that actual twist motion in the Foley. Wow. That's the level of detail they went for. I appreciate that. That's very cool. And across the street from the bank is a Moe's Tavern. Interestingly enough, Hank Azaria has stated that his inspiration for Moe's voice was Sonny from this film. That's awesome. <laughs> Nominations. We will not give away the Oscar winners because we are going to view as much as we can of the ceremonies and talk about it later. Mm -hmm. Nominated for Best Picture. Okay. Best Actor for Al Pacino. And this ends a run of four consecutive Oscar nominations in four years. Oh, okay. The Godfather, Serpico, The Godfather Part Two, and Dog Day Afternoon. Fair. Hell of a fucking run. I mean, Meryl's got you beat, but fuck off. It's it's still impressive. To make those four movies in those four years, that's what's impressive. That's to have that acting run. I mean, it's similar to uh, 
some of the things Tom Hanks has done. Yeah. Best supporting actor, Chris Sarandon. Yep. In his film debut. Uh, man, it's a hell of a debut. I mean, it's one of the, like, I mean, it's like Whoopi and her debut or Jennifer Hudson, her debut. Yeah. I mean, like. For a character that has 10 sh- minutes of screen time. You, you showed up and you hit it out of the park. I mean. Steals the movie. And then to get nominated. I mean, I don't, I don't know if they won, but who gives a fuck? Just to be like, I got nowhere else to go. I'm good. <laughs> fuck it. Best director, Sidney Lumet. Okay. Best editing Whoa. and and best original screenplay. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Fuck off. And that gets us to our ratings. I think we gotta go for the handkerchief. I think that's a good one. I like handkerchief. All right. <laughs> this is my movie. I've yep. seen it before. Yep. I'm gonna give it three and a half handkerchiefs. The performances still get me. They still really get me. Uh... I'm entertained by the movie. I really like it. I really like how it all flows together. But I'll also say it's not everybody's movie, and I totally get why people would look at this and be like, "It's sloppy, it's a mess, I don't like it." I just do. Oh, why I said those things? <laughs> not just you, but other people. I'm, I'm. It's really the other thing too. Of like, I get why people wouldn't necessarily like this movie. Yeah, yeah. So qualifying, knowing that it is very sloppy, I'm giving it a three and a half, just because it's like you don't care because you just like it. It's a fave of mine, fine. but I'm not gonna give it a five and call it a great. Yeah, because you would be wrong. Exactly. There are a few films that I will allow. It's just a five because I love it. There's very few films that I'll allow that. It's a two and a half. Okay. Yeah, because like the the performances are great, and like I like the story, and I do like some of the chaotic nature. Like the the stuff that's really good is really good, but it is chaotic, and the script blows, <laughs> and this is, the direction is sloppy. Like, come the fuck on. Yeah, I'm not like <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> Now I want to go listen to our network episode to like relive <laughs> that annoyance. That was fun times. <gasps> we watched, we watched, damn, watched a lot of good movies. We have. Well, what, what are we watching next time? Are you prepared? No. To return? No. To a director? No. For which we have created an entire rule. Fuck. Oh, fuck me. Fuck me. Why did I agree to this? Why do I do this? We are going to watch Stanley Kubrick's. Fuck me. Historical period epic, three plus hour film. Fuck! Barry Lyndon. I want a divorce. (laughs) Okay, look. (laughs) Here's what I will say about this movie. I actually think out of all of the scripts that he's done, that this one is probably the best well-constructed. I've said that a lot about his movies, so I could be very wrong. It is undoubtedly his most beautiful film that he's ever made. And there will be a lot of talk about that because of how it looks. But you're going to have to buy me so many fucking cookies to watch this goddamn movie. I backloaded this series with a lot of fun, light movies because I knew we were going to have to watch this one. I'm going to yell at you about this so much. (laughs) Oh, my God. We are back to Stanley Kubrick, y'all. Fuck. Until next time. I stand by my previous statement. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.